Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, and we are on episode number 316. The purpose of the Climate Report is to solve climate change and its related problems of biological diversity, the, our relationship with the natural environment, but focus on solving the problem of climate change. What does it take? As a very important part of that, we have to look at politics because politics is how people organize one another and uh, we have to do this together. We have to somehow influence seven and a half billion people on the planet, at least enough of them, to start going in, the positive, in a positive direction. So we're here to solve the problem of climate change. Part of that is politics. And today we're talking about John F. Kennedy's speech at American University on June 10th, 1963. The reason why this topic is important is that it's a, a wonderful speech about peace. Now, I'm not a big fan of presidential speeches. I, on the Climate Report, I have discussed at length at least three different presidential speeches, one from George H.W. Bush after the Gulf War, one from Bill Clinton after signing NAFTA, and one from President Reagan in 1984 where he was trying to convince everybody to support his war against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And you can look at each presidential speech and you can compare it to the facts of history and you can say these men were lying through their teeth. So, and I don't know of very many exceptions of presidential speeches where they're just one lie after another after another. And unfortunately, that's how politics works, at least politics in terms of electoral politics in the United States. But this speech by John F. Kennedy is a rare exception to that. So let's start reading the speech and the connection. What's the, what's the connection between this and climate change? The connection is that peace is very important. In order to address the problem of climate change, we have to seriously downsize the military and that'll have the benefit of helping a lot of people who don't want to end up on the wrong end of an American gun. So let's start reading partway through the speech and then comment. So John F. Kennedy, he says, there are few earthly things, he's at American University, so he says, there are few earthly things more beautiful than a university, wrote John Macefield in his tribute to English universities. And his words are equally true today. He did not refer to towers or the campuses. He admired the splendid beauty of a university because it was, he said, a place where those who hate ignorance may strive to know, where those who perceive truth may strive to make others see. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the important topic, the most important topic on earth, peace. So, so far, so good. I agree with JFK that the most important topic on earth is peace, 
because we go to war for all the wrong reasons and it has a terribly devastating effect. We go to war to make a few people more powerful, make a few rich people richer and make a few powerful people more powerful. That is the reason we go to war. That is not why we're told we go to war, but that is the true reason. Continuing to read. So he says, what kind of peace do I mean? What kind of peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world. By Pax Americana, he's referring to the term Pax Romana meant the peace of Rome. So the Rome was this big empire and when you have an empire, you kind of conquer each individual nation so they're not warring with one another. It's a pro-empire spin. But he says, we're not looking for a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace for all time. Now, here's, I have a question. Isn't peace the most important thing we could be trying to achieve? And yet, we've had constant war, well, for the entire history of the United States. We've had war for all but a very few years in our entire history. And if you look, if you look back at the last 20 years since September 11th, it's been a constant, never-ending war on terror. We have spent countless trillions of dollars. There have been thousands of American lives lost in the war on terror. So you had 3,000 people die on 9-11, and that was tragic, and that was terrible, and it was traumatic. But so far, we've had 7,000 soldiers to die in combat and then additional numbers of soldiers die by suicide when they return home. And then we have countless thousands of people who have lost their lives in the countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Libya, just to name a few. Is this the kind of world that we want? Is this a kind of world that's kind of necessary and inevitable? I hope you agree with me that this is not the world that we want, and it's not the, a world that is necessary or inevitable. Continuing to read. I speak of peace because, the new, because of the new face of war. Now, he's talking in 1963. John F. Kennedy was a veteran of World War II, which ended 
in, in 1945, 18 years prior to this speech. Also in World War II, they developed nuclear weapons, or at the time they called it the atomic bomb. So war always becomes more brutal, more vicious, and more industrial, and a larger scale over the course of time. But there was a big leap during World War II in conventional weapons, and a huge leap into atomic weapons. So that's what he's referring to when he talks about the new face of war. He says, I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age when a single nuclear weapon contains almost ten times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied air forces in the Second World War. In other words, a single nuclear bomb at that time has more force than all of the bombs in the, deployed in Europe and in the Pacific Ocean. He's probably not saying that the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, uh, you know, were ten times the nuclear force, uh, ten times the force. What he's saying is he's probably referring to the hydrogen bomb, which was a great deal more powerful than the uranium bombs. But the big picture is that we're talking about extremely powerful weapons. Nuclear weapons, even if it's a minor exchange like between nuclear powers like India and Pakistan, it could end life as we know it. We don't like to think about that because we kind of put it out of our mind, because we can't do very much about it. But the question is, why do our leaders insist on maintaining nuclear weapons? And the answer is, there is no good reason. They are not defensive weapons. They are weapons of aggression. Continuing to read, today the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles which can only destroy and never create is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary, rational, and end of rational men. I realize that the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and the frequently and frequently the words of the pursuer fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. So what he's acknowledging here is that war is often thought to be more exciting than peace. That's why newspapers sell more papers when they can talk to you about war, and cable news channels get more of an audience when there's war, because it's exciting and it's dramatic. But he's saying that peace 
doesn't seem as exciting or dramatic, but we need to talk about it because, you know, just because. I mean, I, I shouldn't have to make the case that says, yeah, war is exciting, but it's also destructive. It is devastating. We need to work for peace. Continuing to read, he says, Some say that it is useless to speak of peace or world law or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. Well, what he's saying here, there's always the assumption that it's the other guy that is being aggressive. We're just defending ourselves. We're just minding our own business. We would just mind our own business, but people, you know, we were just over here minding our own business, but people won't leave us alone. In fact, they are aggressive and they are going to do violence to us if we don't first do violence to them. That's how they sell wars and it is a total lie. So he says the Soviet Union needs to adopt a more enlightened attitude, you know, as if we don't need to adopt a more enlightened attitude. But continuing to read, he says, I hope they do. I believe we can help them to do it. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitude as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. So there's a phrase in the Bible that says, I mean, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the, on the Mount says, you know, you should, uh, you're looking at your neighbor, like your neighbor has a speck in their eye, but you're trying to get the speck out of your neighbor, neighbor's eye. But look, you have a log in your own eye. First, remove the log in your own eye, and then you can see clearly to help your neighbor remove the speck from their eye. In other words, examine yourself first. But we in the United States, or at least our leaders, do just the opposite. I'm sure it's human nature, but we do it on a large scale because we're the largest empire in history. So let's examine ourselves first and let's not hold others to a standard that we're not holding ourselves to. It's also, also the golden rule applies here. Let's treat others the way we would want to be treated. We don't want to deal with insane people that are always thinking we're the aggressors if we are just trying to mind our own business and attend to our own country. So continuing to read. He says, every graduate of this school, now, if you're just joining me, this is John F. Kennedy, 1963, at American University, delivering the commencement speech. I recommend that you go to YouTube. It's a wonderful speech. John F. Kennedy, speech at American University, June 10th, 1963. He says, every graduate of this school Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude toward the possibilities of peace, toward the Soviet Union, 
toward the course of the Cold War and toward freedom and peace here at home. First, examine our attitude toward peace itself. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need to accept that view. Excuse me, we need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. In other words, if we created the problem, maybe we can solve it. But like Einstein said, you can't solve a problem at the level of thinking that created the problem to begin with. So Kennedy says, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. I'm not referring to the absolute, infinite concept of peace and goodwill of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and incredulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace, based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interest of all concerned. There is no single simple key to this peace, no grand or magic formula to be adopted by one or two powers. Genuine peace must be the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static, challenging, changing to meet the challenge of each new generation. For peace is a process, a way of solving problems. Let me talk for just a minute on what he says, peace is a process, a way of solving problems. So, question. So, Bigger picture, we're trying to solve the problem of climate change. War is a tremendous burden on our climate and the biodiversity on which our climate depends. And not just war itself, but preparation from war, preparation for war, all the military installations, all the, you know, the, the manufacturing of war materiel, the manufacturing of planes and boats and bombs, and also the tremendous numbers of people, the best and the brightest, being deployed to, in the defense industry. That's a tremendous cost. And most of that, you know, if we, do, if we used only a fraction of that to try to solve some of our environmental problems and do justice to our people and people around the world, 
then it's, it's a whole lot of money that is wasted. Just the out-of-pocket cost alone is wasted. So he says, peace is a process, a way of solving problems. So are we willing to be dedicated to the process? Why don't we take some of what we spend on defense and spend it on, you know, diplomacy, for one thing. Why don't we take some of it and just give it to the American people on a per capita basis? Even $1,000 a month, even $1,000 a year, but certainly $1,000 a month would be, would be life-changing for the poorest people. It would breathe life into our economy. It would breathe life into communities. But when he talks about peace as a process, he's talking about, you know, let's be dedicated to resolving our conflicts peacefully. But we don't even try. In the United States of America, we don't even try to resolve our conflicts peacefully because might makes right. The amount of force that we apply to solving our problems has nothing to do with what with ethics it has nothing to do with justice it has nothing to do with what is best for all concerned it has everything to do with enriching those who are already rich and concentrating power into the hands of those who are already powerful continuing to read in Kennedy's speech at American University June 10th 1963. He says, with such a peace, there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests as there are within families and nations. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. It requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance, submitting their disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. And history teaches us that enmities between nations as between individuals do not last forever. However, however fixed our likes and dislikes may seem, the tide of time and events will often bring surprising changes in the relations between nations and neighbors. So let us persevere. Peace, not need be, peace need not be impracticable, and war need not be inevitable. Let, let's stop there. Let's talk about that. Peace need not be impracticable, and war need not be inevitable. There are elements in our culture that want us to think that war is inevitable and that peace is impractical, but where does this idea come from when, and who wins when a lot of people believe that peace is impracticable and war is inevitable? Where does that idea come from and who wins? Well, a lot of it comes from commercial media and from commercial news. And who wins is the people that sponsor the media and the people that sponsor the news. Because war is a great way for people to make a short-term profit or a long-term profit, but war is about power and money and the people that 
profit from war are those that sell the weapons, but the people of America do not profit from war. Continuing to read, by defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, we can help all people see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly toward it. And second, let us re-examine our attitude toward the Soviet Union. It is discouraging to think that their leaders may actually believe what their propagandists write. So, let me stop right there. I'm sympathetic to JFK in much of this speech, but not all of it. And here he is saying in so many words that those people in the Soviet, you know, the those people in the Soviet Union have propagandists that are writing stuff about how the U.S. is hostile and aggressive. Well, I don't know exactly what they were writing, but I know that the U.S. is hostile and aggressive. You know, as between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the U.S. has been 10 times more hostile and aggressive. And it's not rational, but why? Why have they done it? Because the people that sell the weapons win. Irrespective of who wins or loses a war, the people that sell the weapons win. And the people that supply the military win. Whether it's food services or sunscreen or clothing, there are, you know, the military has all kinds of needs, and they win when there is war. So there's a tremendous incentive to build up the military, but it doesn't benefit Americans, let alone the people that we dominate elsewhere in the world. Continuing to read, Kennedy says, It is discouraging to read a recent authoritative Soviet text on military strategy and find, on page after page, wholly baseless and incredible claims, such as the allegation that American imperialist circles are preparing to unleash different types of wars, that there is a very real threat of preventative war being unleashed by American imperialists against the Soviet Union, and that the political aims of the American imperialists are to enslave economically and politically the European and other capitalist countries and to achieve world domination by means of aggressive wars. Now, Kennedy is saying that none of that is true. I'm here to tell you that all of that is true. We're almost out of time, but I want to give a, one or two examples. There was a General Curtis LeMay. <laughs> LeMay was, uh, uh, we'll have to talk more about LeMay next time. But, I mean, we were, they were planning on doing a preemptive strike. I mean, Kennedy is talking in 1963. You know what the nuclear retaliation plan was that if either China or the Soviet Union sent a nuclear missile to the United States that we would take both of them out. So we're going to have to talk about more of that next time. But next time we'll start about, you know, why is this paragraph completely true?
So that's about all the time we have. Let me summarize in about 10 seconds. War is bad for everybody concerned. It's bad for the climate. It's bad for biodiversity. It's bad for the health and well-being of the American people. It's bad for the health and well-being of people. And, you know, a lot of good people get sucked into war through the military because there's economic opportunity. They're also told that it's, you know, it's their duty to serve their country and you can be part of something and you can do something noble. But as General Smedley Butler said, war is a racket. We'll have to leave it at that and we'll talk more next time. Thank you so much for joining me. Bye-bye.